the Roman Empire. Everyone has heard these words. How many of you out there truly know the rise, the severity, and the power of this once great nation? We have heard on movies, in books, and in dialogue the constant words surrounding the collapse of this once powerhouse of a, on the global scene. We've all heard, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Or even the very motivational quote, Rome wasn't built in a day. Join us today as we dive deep into the history books and grow in our knowledge of life, consumption, and morality. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat. Each episode, we'll be focusing on a different country and exploring the relationship between food and death around the world. If you love food, culture, and fun stories, then I've got a great show in store for you, so make sure that you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. Don't forget our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. For benefits of high-quality CBD, go to TheTailoredHemp.com. Before we get too deep, I have to ask, what are the most common mice in Rome? Julius Cheesers. <laughs> I got it in early on you guys. So, let's go way back to the beginning of the 8th century BC. Ancient Rome that we speak about today grew from a small town on the central Italy's Tiber River into an empire that at its peak encompassed most of continental Europe, Britain, and much of Western Asia, Northern Africa, and the Mediterranean Islands, an enormous amount of territory. Among the many legacies of Roman dominance are the widespread use of the Romance language derived from Latin. Let's refresh your memory on how many languages we're talking about here. Italian, French, Spanish, Portuguese, and the Romanian. Rome is also responsible for creating the modern Western alphabet and the calendar. Rome, along with God, are the driving force amongst the emergence of Christianity as the major world religion. Before we keep talking about the amazing accolades of the Roman Empire, let's go back to the beginning. This may sound like a movie, but it is documented as history. Quite fascinating stuff here. Rome was founded in 753 BC by Romulus and Remus, the twin sons of Mars, the god of war. Listen to this. Left to drown in a basket on the Tiber River by a king of nearby Alba Longa and rescued by a she-wolf, the twins lived to defeat that king and found their own city on the river's banks in 753 BC. After killing his brother, Romulus became the first king of Rome, which is named after him. Hold on a second. I want to know why two babies who looked alike, who were born at the same time from the same mom, would be put in a basket and let go down a river. Is this what the world was like before they planned the before planned parenthood existed? I don't know. Now, we are a bit further back in Rome than I wanted to do for this episode. Let's fast forward to a name that all of us are familiar with, no other than Julius Caesar. A rising star in politics at the time was just coming off of earning military, military glory in Spain. He returned to Rome to vie for the consulship in 59 BC. Caesar quickly formed an alliance with other powerhouses, Pompey and Crassus, and was awarded the privilege to govern over three wealthy provinces in Gaul beginning the following year. 
He then set about on this modest mission of conquering the rest of the region for Rome. He just needed Pompey and Crassus out of the picture. Well, life happened only four years later when Pompey's wife, Julia, who happened to be Caesar's daughter, died, and Crassus was killed himself in a battle against Parthia. You may know them from today's Iran. The very next year, the trio was broken. The old-style Roman politics in disorder, Pompey stepped in as sole consul in 53 B.C. Caesar's military glory in Gaul and his increasing wealth had eclipsed Pompey's. And as you might have guessed, Pompey wasn't too keen of this unfolding. He teamed up with his Senate allies to steadily undermine Caesar. Unbothered, in 49 B.C., Caesar and one of his legions crossed the Rubicon, a river on the border between Italy and, um, and Gaul. Caesar's invasion of Italy ignited a civil war from which he emerged as the dictator of Rome for life in 45 B.C. Man, that's pretty interesting, huh? So Caesar's future as king of Rome was looking pretty bright until he was murdered on the Ides of March by a group of his enemies. Let's, uh, let's go back a little bit further here because it is a wild and historic assassination. One that will shake this country upside down if it ever happened in America. Or actually any modern, modern nation for that matter. It, it was pretty interesting. On March 15th, 44 BC, a group of Roman senators murdered Julius Caesar as he sat on the podium at a Senate meeting. In our Senate, all of you have... All you have are senators who tell you what's going on to do something on Twitter, and then they never do it. Caesar, on the other hand, was stabbed 23 times before falling to the ground. Only one of those 23 stabs were fatal. It was a little bit afternoon on the Ides of March, as the Romans and Shakespeare like to call the midday of the month. The spectators didn't know it yet, but they were witnessing the last hours of the Roman Republic. Caesar's last words were, Ete Brute, or you too, Caesar, or you too, Brutus? <laughs> we'll get that one right. You too, Brutus? According to Shakespeare in his play, Tragedy of Julius Caesar, even though Brutus was neither his closest friend nor his biggest betrayer. Not by a long shot, actually. The main betrayer's name was and he belonged to the Roman nobility, the narrow elite that ruled both Rome and an empire for tens of millions of people. His grandfather extended Rome's rule to the Atlantic in Spain, but Diamas's father had a mediocre career and his mother dabbled in revolution. Then Caesar came along and offered Diamas a chance to restore his house's name. So Diamas became his right-hand man, a commander and a war hero. Diamas even chose Caesar in the Civil War and was even granted acting governor of Gaul when Caesar went off to challenge his enemies elsewhere. Gone for four years, Caesar returned to Rome in triumph and Diamas was at his side the entire way. Why then did he decide to raise this deadly dagger against Caesar only nine months later? Well, many Romans feared the power that Caesar amassed. In theory, Rome was a constitutional republic. In practice, Rome teetered for decades on the brink of military dictatorship. Now, first, 
watch out in modern times. Let's see what's really going on here. I'm not a conspiracy theorist and apolitical. But let's look at the let's look at ancient Rome and think about what's going on today. But back to the story. Now, Caesar was Rome's first dictator for life. He was a king in all but name. He even took a queen as his mistress, Cleopatra of Egypt. You know that name, right? In March 44 BC, she lived in Caesar's villa on the outskirts of Rome. Her young son, as she was as she claimed, was Caesar's illegitimate child. All of this was too much. Roman traditions. But ambition rather than political principle turned Deimus against Caesar. Deimus's letters suggested he was a man who cared more about honor than about liberty. He wanted the distinction of a triumph or formal victory parade in Rome, but Caesar denied it, although he granted the privilege to lesser generals. No doubt the dictator liked to dole out his favors slowly to keep his men on their toes. He rewarded Deimus in other ways but the slight still smarted. Then there was the rise of Caesar's young grandnephew, Gaius Octavius. Only a teenager and no soldier, but a gifted and cunning politician. Deimus could have made Deimus could not have liked watching Octavius replace him in Caesar's esteem. Another possible influence on Deimus was his wife, who came from a family that was opposed to Caesar. In other words, if your wife doesn't like him, you can't like him either. In winter of 44 BC, Cassius and others originated the conspiracy to kill Caesar. Like Deimus and Brutus, Cassius belonged to the nobility. He was a professional soldier like Deimus, but also an intellectual like Brutus. A man of action, Cassius inspired Brutus to move. Brutus was no soldier but he was a philosopher and orator and very much admired by the Romans. Deimus joined the plot as well, as did more than 60 prominent Romans. As a past master at ambush, Cassius might have come up with a plan to surprise Caesar in the Senate. Deimus, however, made the wheels turn. Of all the conspirators, only he had Caesar's trust. Caesar even had Deimus at his side at the dinner party the night before his assassination. On the morning of the Ides, Caesar suddenly decided not to go to the Senate meeting, probably because of rumors of conspiracy. As a past master of ambush, Cassius might have come up with a plan to surprise Caesar in the Senate. Deimus, however, made the wheels turn. It's not quite true that a soothsayer, that's another word for a psychic, warned Caesar to beware the Ides of March, as Shakespeare says. In fact, the soothsayer warned Caesar a month earlier to be aware of the 30-day period ending in the Ides of March. That is, the time from February 15th to March 15th. But the Ides had finally come, and you know, Caesar had to be there, right? When they heard about Caesar staying home, the plotters sent Deimus to Caesar's house to talk him into attending the Senate meeting after all. Of all of the conspirators, only he had Caesar's trust. Afterwards, Deimus provided security to the killers. He owned a troop of gladiators who had doubled his private police force. Can you imagine having gladiators protect you? They escorted the assassins to safety on the Capitol Hill and guarded the perimeter during the tense days that followed. That's pretty cool, too. I'd love to have a gladiator regarding me. 
So, at first, the Roman people supported the assassins as defenders of the constitutional liberty, but they quickly changed their minds when they saw the strength and love of Caesar's supporters. Deimus came in for a particular criticism because his closeness to Caesar made his treachery seem all that much worse. Are you ready to have your mind blown with how the story ends? The Judas, and that's the name that keeps coming every time I say Deimus, the Judas of the ancient world. Deimus had to leave Rome to lead an army in northern Europe, excuse me, in northern Italy, and defend what he saw as a cause for the Republic. Although he started out strong, he was outfoxed by Octavius. Named as Caesar's heir and adopted son in Caesar's will, Octavius first allied with Deimus and then turned on him. A year and a half after the Ides of March, Deimus was abandoned by his soldiers, captured by his enemies, and executed. And that's a fair ending, I think. A year later, Brutus and Cassius lost a battle and committed suicide. The powerful Octavius continued on his bloody rise to power and eventually ended up as Rome's first emperor. Eventually, he went by the name Augustus. As Deimus was so important to Caesar's assassination, why wasn't he known better? That's a good question. In part because Brutus monopolized favorable publicity, his friends and family polished his image in publications after his death. Later, Romans looked back at, on Brutus with admiration and laid the groundwork for Shakespeare's eulogy of Brutus as the noblest Roman of them all. Not so for Deimus. Unlike Brutus, Deimus was no wordsmith, nor did he have admirers with a, lib with a literary flair to tell a story. Yet his role does appear in certain lesser-known ancient accounts. Although Shakespeare made little use of them, they survived until today. So the record allows us to recover the tale of Caesar's forgotten assassination. By 29 BC, Octavian was the sole leader of Rome in all of his provinces. To avoid meeting Caesar's fate, he made sure to make his position as absolute ruler acceptable to the public by apparently restoring the political institutions of the Roman Republic, while in reality retaining all the real power for himself. In 27 BC, Octavian assumed the title of Augustus and became the first emperor of Rome. Augustus' rule restored morale in Rome after a century of discord and corruption and ushered in the famous Romana, the, the two full centuries of peace and prosperity that followed. He instituted various social reforms, won numerous military victories, and allowed Roman, Roman literature, art, architecture, and religion to flourish. Octavius ruled for 56 years supported by his great army and by a growing cult of devotion to the emperor. When he died, the Senate elevated Augustus to the status of a god, beginning a long-running tradition of emperors that followed. Augustus' dynasty that followed his death included the unpopular Tigris. He ruled from 14 to 37 AD. He was bloodthirsty and unstable. He was followed by Caligula, which was even worse, from 37 to 41 A.D. And Claudius, who ruled 41 to 54 A.D., 
was one of the best remembered for his army's conquest of Britain. The line ended with Nero, who ruled 54-68 AD, and whose excesses drained the Roman treasury and led to his own downfall and eventually his suicide. Four emperors took the throne in the rocky years after Nero's death. The fourth, Vespasian, <laughs> Vespian excuse me, ruled from 69 to 79 AD, and his successors were Titus and Domitian. They were known as the Flavians. You know, I wonder, is that where my boy Flava Flav got his name? Well, anyway, they attempted to temper the excesses of the Roman court, restore Senate authority, and promote public welfare. Titus, who ruled 79 to 81 AD, earned his people's devotion with his handing of recovery efforts after the infamous eruption of the Valsarius Volcano, which destroyed the towns of Herculeum and, you probably know this one, Pompeii. So, this next part I'm going to tell you about is a little bit redundant, but it is necessary so you get the context of why and how the Roman Empire feels so drastically. The reign of Nerva, which was 96 to 98 AD, that was pretty short. He was selected by the Senate to succeed Domitian and began another golden age in Roman history during which four emperors, Trajan, Ardian, Antonius, Pius, and Marcus Aurelius, took the throne peacefully, succeeding one after another by adoption, as opposed to the hereditary succession. Trajan who ruled 98 to 117 AD. Trajan, who ruled 98 AD to 117 AD, expanded Rome's borders to the greatest extent in history with victories over the kingdoms of Dacia, now which is northwestern Romania, and Parthia. His successor, Hadrian, ruled 117 to 138 AD, solidified the Roman Empire's frontiers. He famously built Hadrian's Wall in present-day England, and continued his predecessor's work of establishing internal stability and instituting administrative reforms. It was between 138 and 161 under the Antonius Pius when Rome continued in peace and prosperity, but the reign of Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180 AD, was dominated by conflict. It included war against Parthia and Armenia and the invasion of Germanic tribes from the north. When Marcus fell ill and died near the battlefield of Vienna, he broke with tradition of non-hereditary succession and named his 19-year-old son Commodius as his, as his successor. I'm sorry. I know I'm being juvenile, but I can't help laughing. Commodius, come on. <laughs> Anyway, what happens when you give a 19-year-old a giant amount of power? The nation declines and disintegrates. The immaturity and, more importantly, the incompetence of Commodius brought the golden age of Roman emperors to a disappointing end in 192. In other words, Commodius flushed away his rule. His death at the hands of his own ministers sparked another period of civil war from which Lucius Centipius Severus emerged victorious in 193. During the 3rd century, Rome suffered from a cycle of near-constant conflict. A total of 22 emperors took the throne. 
many of them meeting violent ends at the hands of the same soldiers who had propelled them to power. Meanwhile, threats from the outside plagued the empire and depleted its riches, including continuing aggression from the Germans and Parthians and raids by the Goths over the Aegean Sea. Finally, some good news came back to Rome after generations of turmoil. Excuse me, in 284 through 305 AD, the reign of Diocletian. Oh man, now this is a name that I'm going to have to study here for a second. The reign of Diocletian temporarily restored peace and prosperity to Rome, but at a high cost to the unity of the empire. Diocletian divided the power into so-called tetrarchy, which is ruled by four sharing his title of emperor with Maxima. A pair of generals, Gallerus and <laughs> we're getting deep here, people. Constantius were appointed as the assassins and chosen successors of Diocletian and Maxian. Diocletian and Gallerus ruled the Eastern Roman Empire while Maxian and Constantius took power in the West. Look, all I've got to read something is five or six times, and I might almost be able to pronounce it, but I'm sure that's right now. So, the stability of the system fused greatly after Diocletian and Maxian retired from office. The son of Constantius, which was Constantine, emerged from the ensuing power struggles as sole emperor of the reunified Rome in 324. He moved the Roman capital from the Greek city of Byzantine, which he had named Constantinople. At the Council of Nicaea in 325, Constantine made Christianity, which at that time was considered an obscure Jewish sect, Roman's official religion. Roman unity under Constantine proved illusory, and 30 years after his death, the Eastern and Western empires are once again divided. Despite its continuing battle against Persian forces, the Eastern Roman Empire, later known as the Byzantine Empire, would remain largely intact for centuries to come. I think the Byzantine Empire is something we're going to tackle on this show. I've always been impressed with it. An entirely different story played out in the West, where the empire was racked by internal conflict as well as threats from abroad, particularly from the Germanic tribes now established within the empire's frontiers, like the Vandals. The Vandals were actually known as the originators of the phrase Vandalism. Rome was steadily losing money due to the constant warfare, which inevitably caused Rome to collapse under the weight of its own bloated empire, losing its provinces one by one. Britain, around 410, Spain, and northern Africa by 430. Attila and his brutal Huns invaded Gaul and Italy around 450, further shaking the foundations of the empire. In September of 476, a Germanic prince named Odovacar won control of the Roman army in Italy. After deposing the last Western emperor, Romulus Augustus, 
Odovacar's troops proclaimed him as king of Italy, bringing an ignoble end to the long, tumultuous history of ancient Rome. We love food and culture on this show, but one thing that we can't let go to pass is talking about Roman architecture. The architecture and engineering innovations have had a lasting impact on the modern world. Roman aqueducts, first developed in 312 BC, enabled the rise of cities by transporting water to urban areas, improving public health and sanitation. Some Roman aqueducts transported water up to 60 miles from its source, and the fountain of Crevi in Rome still relies on an updated version of the original Roman aqueduct. Roman cement and concrete are part of the reason ancient buildings like the Colosseum and the Roman Forum are still standing strong today. Roman arches or segmented arches improved upon the earlier arches to build strong bridges and buildings, evenly distributing the weight throughout the structure. Roman roads, the most advanced roads in the ancient world, enabled the Roman Empire, which was over 1.7 million square miles at the pinnacle of its power, to stay connected. They included such modern-seeming innovations as mile markers and drainage. Over 50,000 miles of road were built by 200 BC, and several are still in use today. That's a mind-blowing realization. So, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. A phrase that gives tourists in the Eternal City free reign to indulge in an extra scoop of gelato or a feast of carbs at every meal. As well as signifying the benefits of following the local customs and traditions to strangers in a foreign land, the expression is also commonly used in everyday situations when following the status quo seems like the best idea. It's such a cliche nowadays that simply saying, when in Rome, still gets the point across, but where did it come from? And, better yet, who said it first? The origin of the saying actually can be traced back to 4th century AD when the Roman Empire was undergoing much instability and had already split in twos. St. Augustine, an early Christian saint, moved to Milan to take up a role as a professor of rhetoric. Unlike his previous church in Rome, he found that the congregation didn't fast on Saturdays. An older and wiser St. Ambrose at the time was the Bishop of Milan, and he offered up some sage words, When I go to Rome, I fast on Saturday, but here I do not. Do you also follow the custom of whatever church you attend, if you do not want to give or receive scandal? St. Augustine later wrote down, the prudent words of St. Ambrose in a letter allowing a modern scholars to pinpoint the origins of the expression to a particular event in history. Sources date this letter between 387 and 390 AD. Let's skip forward a millennium, and Henry Porter came close to the modern version of the phrase in his, in his 1599 play, The Pleasant History of the Two Angry Women of Aberton. In the play, they said, Nay, I hope. As I have temperance to forbear drink, so have I patience to endure drink. I'll do as company doeth, for when a man doeth to Rome come, he must do as there is done. It's pretty wordy. 
Porter might have advocated doing as the Romans do, but when it comes to drinking, Porter might have advocated doing as the Romans do when it comes to drinking, but it was Robert Burton in 1621 who is most likely credited with making the phrase famous, even if he didn't use it explicitly. His book, The Anatomy of Melancholy, states, Like Mercury, the planet, are good with good, bad with bad. When they are at Rome, they do there as they see done, Puritans with Puritans, Papist with Papist. By the time 1777 rolled around, the phrase was in use almost as much as we know it today, as evidenced in the interesting letters of Pope Clement XIV. The Sisto, or Afternoon's Nap of Italy, Siesto. Okay, now, I'm going to go back and correct this word, and we're not going to edit it out. The Siesto, or Afternoon's Nap of Italy, my most dear and reverent father, would not have alarmed you so much if you had recollected that when we are in Rome, we should do as the Romans do. This was the first time that these words were in print. In recent years, a number of films, TV shows, books, and songs have taken the title When in Rome, all thanks to early Christian confused about the customs in his new church. You are now art at the end of this episode, and this episode wasn't built in a day. Rome wasn't built in a day. How many times have you heard that? With layers of stunning architecture and embarrassment of, of artistic masterpieces and countless ancient treasures and a food culture to die for, the Eternal City is one of the world's greatest cities. Such rich offerings developed over thousands of years as it grew from small settlement to buzzing metropolis and during the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the formation of the Papal States, the Renaissance, and the unification of Italy along the way. The first known reference to the saying wasn't made by a Roman or even Italian, but by a 12th century cleric in the present-day Belgium. Recorded as Rome ne fu pass fate tout in un jour. Oddly enough, I feel very confident that I said all of that correctly. The phrase was captured in medieval French poem dating to 1190 that was published in the book of Le Proverbe au Villain by Swiss linguist Alfred Tobler in 1895. Three centuries later, the expression appeared in the English language in Richard Craviner's translation of Disrus Emmaus' work, Adages. It was then even adapted into a playwright's hands in 1538 by the name of John Hayward. This was the point where he gets the credit for how this particular phrase took off running. He may not have actually thought them all up, but a number of expressions featured in his book Proverbs are still common use today. Some of them were out of sight, out of mind, better late than never, and the more the merrier. They're all documented back to Haywood. Shortly after Haywood's publication, other writers began quoting or adapting these phrases, and it was even used by Queen Elizabeth I in 1563 during an address in Cambridge. Good old Lizzie adopted and put her point across in Latin. But this common saying has given me a certain amount of comfort, a saying which cannot take away but can at least lessen the grief that I feel. 
And the saying is that Rome was not built in one day. Thank you, Queen Elizabeth I. It was an inspirational message we can all get behind when going through our daily and weekly lives. Okay, let's take this uh, conversation in the food direction, because you know that's what I'm about. While preparing for this episode, I learned a favorite snack of Roman soldiers was Dormouse. I know. The first thing I thought, too. Ancient Romans ate mice? Well, no, no, no. A Dormouse looks like a tiny gerbil. It's actually an animal that is native to Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's more akin to squirrels. As a teenager in rural Tennessee, I hunted squirrels all the time. Due to the small amount of meat, we normally added them to stew. I know that's not everyone's cup of tea, or more pointedly, your stew of choice. It was and is a reality in many rural areas of the United States. The reason the fact of the soldier's diet caught my attention was one book I really like. That's Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The Disney movie's pretty funny, too. There are so many good one-liners in that story. One that you probably recognize as off with her head. It sounds so horrific, but in context, it carries the scene. One of the key characters was the Dormouse. So, let's talk about Alice's escapades for a minute. The book was written by Lewis Carroll in 1865. It talks about a girl that falls into a rabbit hole to find this world populated by all kinds of anthropomorphic creatures. It actually began as a story that Carol told three young girls to keep them entertained on a boat trip. Eventually, it became the book that we know three years after that trip. On closer examination, the story the Dormouse is largely dominated and treated as insignificant in the story and it was a representation of the working-class people of that age. He was under the dominance of the Hatter and the Marched Hare. It is widely believed that Carol's portrayal of the Dormouse mirrored the teachings of Karl Marx and that the Dormouse represented the downtrodden that were held in place by society that stopped them from fighting for their own rights. At the time, the Dormouse's treckle was akin to Marx's word, Religion is the opium of the people. Today, I reflect and wonder, what can we replace that sentence? Is it television? Video games? Social media? Hold on, everybody. i got to have a second so I can check my Facebook status. So, for this episode, we don't have a, a burial ritual. Spoiler. Alice did escape with her head intact. Also, I'm not going to talk about cooking squirrel or dormouse. That isn't something that many of you listeners would duplicate anyway, so the recipe is going to be substituted dormouse with Cornish hen. Honey was one of the most popular ways for Roman soldiers to base their catch, so it can be a in key ingredient here. Also, if you haven't heard, if you've never had a Cornish hen, you're really missing out. It's like having your own personal size chicken, and really, I enjoy cooking them as well as eating them. Great choice for date night, too, if you really want to impress your significant other. With that said, let's get to the recipe. The recipe is actually one by uh, a cook that, that I've duplicated her recipe several times. That's Rosie Mays. Uh, hopefully, one day I'll get to meet that girl because. She really seems to have her act going on. 
The ingredients are two Cornish hens, a half cup of butter, two tablespoons of honey, two tablespoons of brown sugar, a quarter teaspoon of cinnamon, and two Granny Smith apples, and one red delicious apple. So first you're going to make a glaze. In a microwave-safe bowl, in a microwave-safe bowl, add half a cup of butter and two tablespoons of honey. Microwave for 20 seconds or until the butter is melted. Add two tablespoons of brown sugar and stir with a spoon. Add a quarter teaspoon of cinnamon and mix and then set it aside. For the Cornish hens, empty the cavity of the Cornish hen and rinse under cool water. Dice the apples and stuff the cavity of the Cornish hens with the apples. Use butcher string to tie the legs together. Lining a baking dish with foil, you know, so it's easier to clean later. Place the hen's breast down and brush with a tablespoon of the melted butter. Cover the baking dish with foil and bake at 350 for 20 minutes. Remove from the oven and brush the Cornish hens with a glaze. Place back in the oven uncovered for 25 more minutes. Now, that's a pretty simple recipe and, uh, and one I think that you'll really enjoy. So guys, I've been your host Scott Parrish and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. This show is made possible by listeners like you and I really appreciate your support. My shout out today is for Leslie Webster in Tennessee, David Warner of Pakistan, thank you brother, and one of my close friends who he's a bit more under the weather right now than is really good for anybody. That's William Fain. You got this brother, keep fighting. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more, then look out for new episodes every week on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to hit that follow button and stay up to date on our latest episodes. And until next time, stay lively.